Well, Jim Rickards is the author of New York Times bestsellers Currency Wars and more recently The Death of Money. He has advised the Department of Defense, the U.S. intelligence community and major hedge funds on global finance and will be in South Africa next week for the CFA South Africa Global Investment Conference that's taking place at Gibbs. Jim, it's good to have you on the show and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Let's start with uh, looking at where we are at the moment uh, in global markets. The world is highly uncertain. Market and currency volatility are the order of the day. And you think that in this context, gold is really the only true money and we should return to the gold standard as an economy, as a global economy. Can you talk us through why that is? Uh, sure, Hannah. That's uh, that's a great question, and uh, I'll come to gold. But before we get to gold, maybe talk about the, the first part of your question, which is the instability and uncertainty in global capital markets and currency markets. And I think that's exactly the case. And I attribute a lot of that to uh, to the United States, to uh, our central bank, the Federal Reserve, and to policies of the U.S. government. Not to go through the entire monetary history of the uh, the 20th and early 21st century, but you know, up until 1971, the world did have a, a gold standard that worked fairly well. Uh, from seven, the late 70s, were were a muddle. It was a very uh, unstable period, not unlike the, the the kind we're having right now. Although the danger today is more deflation, the danger in the late 70s was inflation. But they're just different kinds of instability. And finally, by about 1980, uh, through the efforts of our Fed Chairman Paul Volcker and President Ronald Reagan, we stabilized the dollar. And then for a very long period, for about 30 years, from 1980 to 2010, uh, the world was not on a gold standard, but it was on a, a kind of dollar standard. Uh, trading partners and other central banks around the world could kind of anchor to the dollar and feel that that was a reliable store of value. So it was sometimes referred to as the age of king dollar. That was all uh, torn up in 2010 after the... Uh, global financial crisis of uh, 2008, early 2009, um, the United States set about cheapening the dollar. This is really the beginning of the currency wars. And the view in the United States was, well, the entire world economy is uh, is in a depression. It's a very unstable thing. The U.S. is the largest economy in the world. If we go down, we'll take the rest of the world with us in terms of trade and finance. And so we need a cheap dollar to give the U.S. a little boost. And, and we got it in 2011. The dollar was close to an all-time low, and of course, that was when gold was, at least in dollar terms, was close to an all-time high. Not really a surprise. I mean, gold, the dollar price of gold tends to move inversely to the strength of the dollar. So a weak dollar means a high dollar price for gold, and conversely, a strong dollar means a low dollar price for gold. So in 2011, we had a very weak dollar. Well, since then, we've seen the... Uh, the cheap uh, yen, the Japanese yen, in 2013. Uh, then the euro was cheapened in uh, 2014 through negative interest rates and quantitative easing. So it sort of brings us around where these different currencies have taken turns uh, cheapening themselves to give their economies a boost. And, of course, the thing about currency wars is not every currency can cheapen against every other currency at the same time. That's a mathematical impossibility. Uh, you have to take turns. Uh, in the 30s, this was called beggar thy neighbor. Uh, today, uh, no one wants to use those words, but exactly the same thing is going on. So, uh, but, but the blunder of the Federal Reserve, in, in 2014, uh, our central bank, the Federal Reserve, decided that we could, in effect, afford a strong dollar, that the U.S. economy was doing better, uh, that um, they would soon be able to raise interest rates, and that it was okay for the euro and the yen and other currencies to, to be lower. 
That turns out to be uh, an historic blunder. Uh, the Fed was wrong about that, not surprisingly. Their, their models are obsolete. Their forecasting ability is dismal, and that's not just an opinion. Go back and look at Fed forecasts for the last seven years. They've all been wrong by orders of magnitude. So the Fed has a, a terrible forecasting record, but they took the view that the U.S. economy was strong. We could afford a strong dollar. That turns out not to be the case. The U.S. economy is very weak, very... Um, are not on very sound footing, and the strong dollar has made things worse. So now we have capital outflows from emerging markets, including South Africa, but you see capital leaving uh, South Africa and China and Brazil and Russia, South Asia, all around the world, coming to the United States in anticipation of higher interest rates. We see a stronger dollar. This has made the United States a, a magnet for all the deflation in the world. So uh, the, uh, we have capital outflows in emerging markets, collapsing emerging markets currencies, uh, deflation in the United States, a weakening U.S. economy. So the world economy is in very bad shape, mainly because of these uh, forecasting, analytic, and policy blunders of the Federal Reserve. And we've seen the, the IMF at their annual meeting going on right now in Lima, Peru, in their uh, World Economic Outlook, have said this, said not in quite... Uh, the blunt language I'm using, but they said that we have uh, we're on the edge of an emerging markets crisis and the world is slowing down. And in that context, you know, you mentioned a lot of different things there that I'd like to pick up on. So let's start with U.S. growth. Um, we have heard a lot about U.S. growth and analysts, investors, various commentators, including media, make a pretty big deal of it. The Fed has tapered its bond buying program, um, quantitative easing, that is. Unemployment is at an all-time low and the U.S. economy does appear to be picking up from what we're led to believe. You obviously don't buy that. Well, I don't buy it, but I but I rely on the data, Hannah. I mean, it, it's uh, you know, there's an old saying: uh, you're you're entitled to your opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And I so what I do is look at the facts. Now, just to take the United States in 2015, uh, first quarter GDP was six tenths of one percent. The second quarter, granted, was very strong. It was about three point nine percent. Although, when you look behind the curtain a little bit, a lot of that was inventory accumulation. I usually back out inventories and substitute final sales, but Take it as it is, 3.9%. In the third quarter, we just finished the third quarter. We won't have those official numbers until the end of October. But there's a very good um, real-time tracker put together by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, one of our regional Federal Reserve banks that has a very good uh, forecasting record. And it's uh, estimating third quarter growth of less than 1%, about 7 tenths of 1%. To take the three numbers together, 0.6, 3.9, 0.7, add them up, divide by three, and what you get is a good estimate of annualized growth of about 1.8%. The Fed's target is 2.5%. So once again, the target is too high, the forecast is too high, the actual date appears to be about 1.8%, which is very weak growth, nowhere near U.S. potential, nowhere near the Fed's forecast. As far as employment is concerned, yes, the, the, employment, the unemployment rate that headline number, again, is 5.1%. But when, again, when you look behind the number, labor force participation in the United States is the number of kind of uh, adult, uh, part of the adult population actually working uh, is the lowest it has been since 1977, almost an all-time low in terms of that data series. We are creating jobs, but what's happening is that we're losing a job that makes 80000 a year in the oil patch, and we're getting three bartenders making 25000 a year. Now, there's mm-hmm. dignity in all work. I'm not disparaging bartenders. I think bartenders are, are just fine. But three $25,000 uh, jobs 
uh, doesn't replace one $80,000 jobs in terms of job in terms of aggregate demand and purchasing power and marginal propensity to consume. And so what you have is that yes, we are creating jobs. They're not high-paying jobs. They're not full-time jobs. Uh, the demand is not there. Real wages are not going up. Labor force participation is low. And then when you look at inflation, which is sort of the third leg of the stool, uh, the Fed has a 2% inflation target. They use an indicator PCE, price deflator, year over year. That's showing about 1.2% that's going down. So looking at actual data, not not the kind of happy talk you get on, uh, on, uh, on television and radio uh, from a lot of analysts who are... Um, maybe have uh, the interest of working for investment banks, but when you get away from the happy talk and look at the actual data year to date, it looks like growth is about 1.8%, inflation is 1.2%, and uh, real wages are going nowhere, and the job creation is uh, is weak. And so putting all that together, it's nowhere near the Fed target. It's much weaker than most people realize. If the Fed did raise interest rates now, which I don't expect, by the way, I should make it clear that I think the Fed's next move will not be tightening at all. It will be easing. We can talk more about that. But uh, if the Fed were to tighten, it would cause an emerging markets meltdown comparable to 1998. I did want to ask you about uh, rates. But while we're talking about the U.S. Fed, what is the role of central banks in this current environment? And how has that role changed? And what perhaps should central banks be doing more of or be doing less of and with what tools? Well, it's a great question. It's probably doing less of everything. Uh, I've actually been in markets uh, long enough that I remember a time, not that not all that long ago, when your your typical Americans, certainly uh, or citizens around the world, certainly could not tell you the name of the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Uh, when they made policy changes, they did not announce them. That uh, market watchers could infer a policy change from actual activity in the marketplace, but they they did nothing to announce it. Uh, and they they really played a very much behind the scenes role, simply um, you know easing or tightening in small increments at the uh, at the margin to try to uh, avoid inflation or uh, or give the economy a little boost. Today, that's all changed. First of all, our central bank, the U.S. central bank, has what they call the dual mandate. Most central banks around the world they have a single mandate, which is price stability. They're just supposed to maintain the value of the currency and stable prices. The U.S. has a dual mandate, which is price stability and job creation, or your maximum employment, uh, um, given the economic conditions, but it boils down to job creation. But once you tell a central bank that they're in charge of creating jobs, you've turned them into central planners. Um, By the way, the Fed has no ability to create jobs. The Fed does not create jobs. Jobs are created by entrepreneurs and business people, Mm. capital committers. That's how you create jobs. But the Fed has gotten it in their head because they're all sort of you know, very big brain uh, PhD economists with, without much connection to the real world that they can somehow, uh, you know, mystically create jobs. Well, uh, so they've become central planners for the economy. Now, given the role of the dollar, the U.S. dollar, as the leading reserve currency worldwide, when you have our central bank manipulating the currency to try to uh, manipulate the economy to create jobs, indirectly they're manipulating the entire global economy because... Countries, again, from South Africa to China uh, have to decide, you know, do we want to peg to the dollar? Do we want to cheapen? Do we want to fight the currency wars, avoid the currency wars? But you cannot uh, you cannot get out of the system, at least not very easily, and so, um, you know, unless you're North Korea or something like that. So the point being, they're manipulating the, the global economy. They don't have the ability or the uh, learning, really, to do it. 
Uh, they're doing a poor job of it. They have obsolete models, bad forecasting, and they just created one bubble after another, and they're in the process of creating new bubbles. Uh, the, the, the most dangerous bubble in the world today, by the way, is uh, uh, emerging market dollar-denominated debt because U.S. interest rates have been so low for so long that uh, not sovereigns but companies, corporations, in uh, throughout the world have borrowed in U.S. dollars for low interest rates in the expectation that the dollar would not get a lot stronger. Well, indeed, it has got a lot stronger, making the real value of that debt higher, uh, which will lead to a massive wave. This is a $9 trillion problem, uh, as estimated by the Bank for International Settlements. It's what the uh, IMF was referring to in their statements this week. And so so you have another bubble. It's not U.S. housing this time. It's emerging market dollars and automated debt. So this looks like 1997 all over again. But we're on the verge of... Uh, one or more financial crises in the next two years, much worse than 2008 because of these blunders by the Federal Reserve. And is this why you think the Fed needs to ease rates? You mentioned easing versus tightening. Yes, uh, the U.S. economy is slowing down. Uh, the, the Chinese made the mistake of pegging to the U.S. dollar. So as the Fed tightened uh, between 2000, the Fed has been tightening for the last two years. Uh, China pegged their currency to the dollar. Well, when you peg your currency to another currency, if they tighten, you have to tighten to maintain the peg. So the Fed's been tightening for two years. This this led to tightening in China because of the transmission mechanism of the exchange rate. This is what the, the currency wars are all about, or one aspect of it. So the U.S. has slowed down. China has slowed down. Uh, I find the talk about the U.S. raising rates... Um, Nonsense. Why would you raise rates when your economy is slowing down? This is typically a time to ease. Now, people say the Fed cannot ease because they're already at zero. They've been at zero interest rates since uh, 2008, which is true. They cannot lower interest rates. Uh, but there are five ways the Fed could ease. Uh, the first would be um, what we call helicopter money, which is just running fiscal deficits and then monetizing the debt by money printing. The second would be a new round of QE, quantitative easing, so-called QE4. The third would be to re rejoin the currency wars and cheapen the dollar, which would make uh, other currencies uh, stronger. So that that's a form of ease. Uh, the fourth way of doing it is reinstating forward guidance, which is just really tightening and easing by using words rather than using interest rates. So they would give markets some words in a row that would indicate they're not raising rates anytime soon. Uh, and the fifth way to do it would be negative interest rates. So, so you do have five policy tools to ease. My expectation is they'll start with forward guidance and then maybe do, maybe do some kind of QE or more likely probably go back to the currency war. So I would look for uh, forward guidance and a cheaper dollar in uh, 2016. But the Fed's going to have to do one of these things to ease or else the U.S. economy will go into a recession and take the world with it. We will get to that uh, in a second. What does that mean if the dollar collapses? Let's talk about China, though. You did mention it a couple of times. The recent devaluation of the yuan caused major turmoil in markets across the globe. How important is uh, China's economic growth for the rest of the world? And what did that sort of market collapse indicate? Well, it's very important. Uh, China is uh, about 13% of global GDP. So if you slow China down by a third, so let's say, you know, it's still growing. I'm not talking about a recession in China, but if Chinese growth goes from, say, 7 to uh, 4 uh, or 3.5%, somewhere in there, that's that's a 30% slowdown of 13% of global GDP. Well, that takes uh, about three points off of global GDP. Well, global GDP is only 3.1% to begin with, according to IMF estimates. So you're talking about 
China by itself taking global GDP growth to zero. That's mm. a global recession. That's a very serious matter. But this is partly because the U.S. Federal Reserve has, uh, again, tightened monetary policy, and China went along with it. So I say both central banks blundered, the Fed by tightening, and the China and China by pegging to the dollar, so they slowed down as well. Now, there are many other problems in China. They have a credit bubble. They have, uh, um, they have asset bubbles in, in stocks and real estates, which have started to deflate. Those bubbles have already started to pop. Uh, they have um, a non-competitive exchange rate when you look at the trading partners like Vietnam and Korea and Taiwan and Japan. There are other partners or competitors. Uh, their, their exchange rate is not competitive. So they have, they have a credit bubble, asset bubbles, uh, and a slowdown all at the same time. So I'm not laying all the blame at the feet of the Federal Reserve, but they certainly contributed to it. But if you, but China and the U.S. are the two largest economies in the world. Together, together they're over 30% of global GDP. Well, you take those two economies and slow them down, you're going to slow down the entire world. Uh, and that's what's happening. Could we see um, China's yuan, its renminbi, become another reserve currency? And can we have multiple reserve currencies? Well, it is possible to have multiple reserve currencies. It, it, the last time it happened was in the uh, 1920s and 1930s when you had the U.S. dollar and sterling. But recall that was um, there was a gold standard at the time, so maybe you had multiple reserve currencies, but, uh, but there was an anchor to the system, which was gold. Now, even today, there are multiple reserve currencies. The dollar is the leading reserve currency. It's about 60% of global reserves. But in the other 40%, you have significant amounts of euros, uh, Japanese yen, uh, sterling uh, to some extent. Uh, so the Chinese yuan is coming along, but the Chinese yuan will not be a true global reserve currency anytime soon. They may, they may be included in the, uh, the basket that backs up the IMF world money, uh, what they call the special drawing right of the SDR. It's a form of uh, printed world money coming from the IMF. And they have a basket of five currencies that they use to calculate the value. So they may include the yuan, the Chinese yuan, in that basket next year. Uh, and that carries some prestige with it. But, uh, but in fact, uh, the, the problem with the difference between a reserve currency and a trade currency, the yuan can be a trade currency. So if South Africa is conducting trade with China, which they are, uh, South African exporters can agree to be paid in Chinese yuan, and then that yuan might be useful. Um, for buying Chinese exports, manufactured goods, or clothing, or as the case may be. That's a trade currency. But to be a reserve currency, you need a bond market. You need something to invest in. If I run a large trade surplus in a currency, you can't stick the money under a mattress. You need to go out and buy some bonds to hold those reserves. Well, there is no Chinese bond market to speak of. And, so, and, and they're very far away from it because it's a communist uh, society, so they don't have a good rule of law. They don't have... Dealers, they don't have derivatives, futures, and options you can use for hedging purposes. They don't have a good payment system. They don't have all the things you need to run a bond market to be a reserve currency. This is the, the Europeans do, and Sterling and Japan and the United States do, but, but China does not. So they're far from being a reserve currency, but they will, um, they will grow as a trading currency. That's true. The question is, what happens the next time there's a global financial crisis? We know what happened the last time, which is the, which is the Federal Reserve printed, swapped, and guaranteed tens of trillions of dollars to reliquify the world and prop up global markets. But when it happens again, their ability to do that will be highly constrained because they've never 
having expanded their balance sheet in 2010, uh, sorry, in 2008, they've taken those steps to reduce the balance sheet. So what are they going to do? They, they went from uh, about $1 trillion to $4 trillion. They printed $3 trillion. Are they going to print, you know, another $3 trillion or $6 trillion? I mean, what is, what is the outer limit of their printing ability? Well, they're, they're probably close to it. Uh, and so the, to reliquify the world, who's going to print the money? Well, that's going to have to come from the IMF. They're going to have to print trillions of dollars of SDRs, which will be highly inflationary, and that's, that's really the intent. But at some point, my estimate is that uh, um, investors around the world will lose confidence in all this money printing. They'll lose confidence in the ability of central banks and the IMF and the G20 to really maintain a, a sound system, and that's when you'll see the rise of gold. That's when gold comes in, and you do say that um, investors should invest, as far as I know, 20% each in gold, land, and hedge funds or private equity, 10% in fine art, and the rest in cash, around 30%. But if you weren't invested in equities, let's say over the past five years, you would have missed out on quite a nice bull market. Do you expect that not to continue going forward? Uh Yes, exactly. I, as you know, the economy in uh, nearing recession around the world, with stocks appearing to be uh, in bubbles, uh, with a lot of the sentiment being propped up by the central banks and central banks reaching the outer limit of their ability to continue to prop up markets, then uh, on a going forward basis, I would certainly recommend uh, a portfolio of hard assets. The percentages, um, you know, yes, I have uh, uh, made those uh, uh, references from time to time. But I think the percentages can be flexible, but you should have some gold in your portfolio. Uh, I think fine art is a very good asset ca- category. It's not easily accessible to everyone. Uh, cash um, reduces the volatility of your portfolio. Uh, and I would make the point that investors need to protect against inflation if you have this massive printing of special drawing rights, but they also need to protect against deflation because of the central bank blunders. If, if I told you we were going to have either inflation or deflation, you would know exactly what to do. But when I say that we're in danger of having both or one and the other in sequence, then an investor really needs to be prepared for both. So good inflation protection would be gold, land, fine art, fine art, some of the things you mentioned. Good deflation protection would be high-quality government bonds uh, and cash. And so I think investors really need a diversified portfolio of both of those things to withstand uh, either extreme outcome. What does all of this mean, This uh, these currency wars, global financial market instability, potential crises, perhaps we are experiencing one already. What does it mean for an emerging market such as South Africa? Well, emerging markets are uh, extremely vulnerable for the reasons we've been discussing, which is that, again, given, given the role of the dollar uh, and given the role of global capital flows, so if you're South Africa, uh, you know, you could be pursuing good policies and have some growth, and then suddenly, um, you know, the U.S. dollar is cheaper, and so dollar-based investors flood into South Africa. They want to buy the rand. They want to invest in the local stock markets. They want to invest in companies and, and all that, which which feels good. You know, that's that's a nice, uh, nice uh, uh, kind of compliment. Uh, feels good if you're South Africa, but then suddenly, just like that, uh, the Fed talks about raising interest rates and. The economy slows down, all the money goes out again, and people sell the stocks and sell the real estate and sell the rand and get back to dollars and cover the short position. So it's almost like a, a tide, but an extreme tide. So the money flows in, and then the money flows out. If you had a stable monetary system, that wouldn't happen. What would happen is people would take investments 
based on fundamentals. They would not pick investments based on uh, cross rates and uh, carry trades and leverage and currency wars. But we do have a world of uh, leverage and, uh, and currency wars. And so you have all this hot money sloshing around the world, but it's very destabilizing. Um, again, the, the South African rand has varied between you know, as, as strong as eight and as weak as 12 to the dollar mm. uh, in, in the past couple of years. And uh, I would expect that to continue. Now um, it's, it's a little bit weak. But what if the Fed, as I expect, what if the Fed wakes up and sees that the U.S. economy is weaker than they expected and they decide to get back in the currency wars and cheapen the dollar and the rand gets stronger? Um, so again, you're, 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 it, it could be South Africa, but the same analysis applies to uh, China and India and, and Brazil and a lot of other countries around the world. Um, this is not a stable system. And, and one of these days, probably sooner than later, these... Uh, these, this volatility will cause an unexpected collapse or break somewhere in the system, and then the contagion will spread very quickly, and you'll be back to a global financial crisis of the kind we saw in 2008. Tied, tied to that, just that need um, to perhaps build in some resilience, and perhaps here is a secret for emerging markets, you have called for a diminishing of the role of finance and an empowering of the role of commerce. Briefly, what does that look like? Well, it looks like the history of the world prior to very recently, and that was what I mean by that is, what is the purpose of finance? The purpose of finance is to facilitate commerce. So commerce is trade, it's entrepreneurship, it's export, import, it's building business, it's creating jobs, it's hiring people, it's innovation, technology, education, it's all the things you want in your economy. Now, there is a role for finance in facilitating that in the form of you know, short-term finance and discounting bills and um, uh, capital raising. And, and that's a perfectly fine traditional role, and that's the role that finance played until recent decades. The problem today is that finance has become an end in itself because of derivatives, because of greed, because of leverage, because of technology. Uh, people pursue finance not to, um, uh, not to help commerce, but to extract profits in a, almost a parasitic way from the larger body of society. And in the process of doing so, they create instability, they create leverage, they create hidden risks that the regulators and indeed the financiers themselves have very limited capacity to discern. Uh, so we get these bubbles and crises time and again. We've seen them in 1994 in Mexico, 1998 in Russia, 2000 in the dot-com, 2007 in U.S. mortgages, and then today we can see clearly see bubbles in emerging markets, dollars-denominated debt, and elsewhere. And so my uh, recommendation, not that, uh, not that anyone particularly is listening, is that uh, finance needs to be uh, more heavily regulated and return to a traditional function as a facilitator, facilitator of commerce rather than a sort of parasitic or extractive end in itself. There we go. Jim Rickards is the author of New York Times bestselling books, Currency Wars and the Death of Money.